If we wish to know the force of human genius, we should read Shakespeare. If we wish to see the insignificance of human learning, we may study his commentators. William Hazlitt I want to talk to you about a man. A man with a grade school education who had a shotgun wedding before living in a completely different city from his family. Don't worry, though. He made sure they were financially secure by starting up an illegal malt business and lending money with interest. Don't tell the church. Oh, he also wrote some of the greatest plays and poetry the world has ever known. Although by today's standards, he definitely plagiarized them. That's right. I'm talking about William Shakespeare, the man behind the bard. We are here to take a peek behind the mythology and have an honest look at Shakespeare and his works to break down the bardolatry. Hello, and welcome to Breaking Bard, a ripe good scholar podcast. Every other Monday, I will be posting an episode that attempts to chip away at the wall surrounding Shakespeare scholarship that is bardolatry. We will also talk about some of the more fun aspects of the plays, and even try to diagnose the mental state of some of his characters. Basically, I want to introduce a little fun and ridiculousness into our Shakespeare studies, because that is the key to turning Shakespeare into an appropriate level of bardolatry. But why does it matter? Why is bardolatry a problem? And if it is, what can be done about it? Well, I'm glad you asked, my very astute listener. So let's take a little time to explore the thesis behind this podcast. To sum it up in a few sentences, bardolatry is the excessive admiration of Shakespeare. It is a problem because it closes Shakespeare off to a lot of people. We can eradicate this problem by having a brutally honest discussion about the bard and his works. But a good podcast is more than a few sentences, so I'll elaborate. When we construct this image of Shakespeare as the lone writer locked away in his room, scribbling down plots and characters that come solely from the deep wells of his own imagination, we place his work on such a high pedestal that it is rendered inaccessible to the average person. This image is also false. At the end of the day, Shakespeare was just a man, a good writer, even a great writer, but he was still a man. The false image of the bard often ignores, or at least downplays, what makes Shakespeare difficult, while doing the same thing to some of the more entertaining parts. To me, there is Shakespeare, and then there is Shakespeare. Shakespeare is the man that wrote the entertaining plays that we all enjoy today. Shakespeare is the near-mythic writer that produced works of incomprehensible genius, the epitome of high art. In an effort to preserve the image of Shakespeare, modern criticism, more often than not, is dismissed. The truth is, I can understand why some in academia are resistant to looking at Shakespeare through a modern critical lens. 
It's not as though Shakespeare had the benefit of our modern sensibilities. And so, it's not too difficult to find sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, and any other ism in the plays. Hermia in A Midsummer Night's Dream is called an Ethiop to distinguish her as unattractive. Aaron the Moor in Titus Andronicus wonders if he is evil because he is black. In The Merchant of Venice, Shylock is supposed to be the clear bad guy, and the karmic justice he receives is forced conversion to Christianity. Kate in Taming of the Shrew is abused into becoming an obedient wife. Ugh. I could go on, but that would be too depressing. And this is supposed to be a fun educational podcast. Anyway, if we are going to perform and study Shakespeare today and keep his works relevant, we need to be able to look at the plays critically. We need to discuss how his plays fit into our modern discourse. Otherwise, they will just become another old-fashioned work presented solely for the purpose of appreciating the classics. The community of Shakespeareans will grow smaller and smaller, which would be a real tragedy. This Shakespearean ideal has created an interesting dichotomy. On the one side, we have Shakespeare, the inventor of the human, works with characters that can speak to every person, and every person should at least have an introduction to the bard in order to join society as an adult. That is at least what we tell high school students. On the other side, we have works that are impossible for most to understand. The language barrier is so high that only the elite, the smartest, or at least those dedicated to years of study can truly access the brilliance of his works. In the end, we build Shakespeare studies up into this looming threat that all students will have to trudge through to get a passing grade. And what we do most often is we tell students to read the plays. The plays that are fully intended to be performed. Then we seem surprised that students get turned off by Shakespeare. We have built up Shakespeare to be this god of writing whose plays are near perfection. It is an image that no person could live up to. And so, in the end, reality is a disappointment. On top of that, students are repeatedly told how difficult the language is to understand. Now, we have a disappointing reality paired with a challenging text. It is no wonder that a lot of students don't enjoy Shakespeare. Then, on top of that, we don't give students room to explore the place and what makes it relevant for them. There are pertinent conversations going on right now that Shakespeare's works can speak to. Measure for Measure can lead to an interesting discussion about rape culture. Othello can be an interesting catalyst for talking about race and the assumptions we make based on it. If we want to look at anti-Semitism, we need look no further than the Merchant of Venice. What teenager doesn't want to rebel against their parents like Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet? Speaking of Romeo and Juliet, suicide is a real problem the teenagers are facing today. Thinking about gender identity? Q-12th night. I'm also pretty sure there's a conversation to be had about cliques with Julius Caesar. 
However, we don't always let these conversations happen because it's hard enough to cover the basics, especially when we read the text. It's just, it has to stop. I think there's also that resistance to shining our modern light on Elizabethan text may show some of the less appealing bits. Shakespeare's works are put up on this high pedestal before students even read a word. So any confidence they do have is quickly undermined. As they read through the text, they become hyper-focused on understanding each and every word. Along with the basic meaning of the words, students have to figure out the emotion behind them. Double confusion. This is why performance is so crucial. The actor provides so much more than can ever be gathered through reading, especially by a novice. Take, for example, Hamlet's famous speech. First, we read it. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. Now, let's listen to it performed like an actor would. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. The difference is clear. The weight of the words is so much more potent. That is the benefit of performance. When you are not struggling through each individual word or sentence, the language becomes less of a burden and easier for anyone to understand. And then the more interesting conversations can happen. Early modern English is not drastically different from modern English, but it's different enough that our ears are not trained for it. This key fact is often glossed over by Bartolators. It's as though the difficulty of the language doesn't matter because the plays are so good that the genius will shine through with a single reading. But when you think about it, that doesn't make sense. How good the writing is doesn't matter if you can't understand the words. Shakespeare was not just writing in early modern English. He was writing poetry. In essence, we are taking something that is already a challenge and adding in imagery, metaphor, references, and slang. In addition, there are typically characters that don't speak English very well. It can feel nearly impossible. But like with any language, you have to adapt to the sound of the speech. Once your ear is trained to the rhythm of the speech, it becomes so much easier to just listen and understand. It stops feeling like a completely different language. I believe this can be best achieved by watching performances. The moment the language stops feeling like something completely different, the poetic aspects don't feel nearly as daunting. Thankfully, Shakespeare does quite a few things to help us along the way. The important stuff gets repeated. A lot. If something is important, it will be talked about before it happens, as it happens, and after it happens. Take, for example, the plot against Malvolio in Twelfth Night. 
Maria starts to devise her plot to write a letter that will trick Malvolio into thinking that Olivia is in love with him. Then, she appears with the letter and repeats its purpose. After we watch Malvolio do exactly what Maria said he would, she comes in to reminisce about what she wrote and how the plot will continue from there. Maria comes in later to let her co-conspirators know that stuff is about to go down. Stuff goes down with comments along the way. Finally, it is all repeated for Malvolio and us at the end. Shakespeare makes sure you don't miss a thing. In fact, he often uses asides to explain what is happening on stage and how we should feel about it. He gives the audience a voice in a way by having characters provide live feedback on stage. It's really pretty useful. I think we often forget that Shakespeare was not exclusively writing for the upper class. The globe was not packed full of nobles nodding knowingly at the brilliance of this high art. Why? Simply because the theater was not considered a high art. In fact, being an actor was considered such a lowly profession that women weren't allowed to participate. It was akin to being a prostitute for a woman to perform on the stage. And so Shakespeare and the other degenerate artists strive to entertain the masses, the masses that loved double entendre and potty humor. Then, many decades later, the theater became the property of the elite. Plays became a sort of highbrow entertainment. In an effort to maintain the facade that this was always the way, the lowbrow parts of Shakespeare were swept under the rug or downplayed. We make Shakespeare serious to uphold the illusion that he is the epitome of high art, and in doing so, we suck all the fun out of it. We repeatedly assert that the comedies are called comedies because the ending is happy, not necessarily because they are funny, which, to an extent, is true. However, the comedies are also funny. We need to embrace the sex jokes and crazy antics because those help make the plays feel accessible. It helps break down the Shakespeare. We must accept that Shakespeare can simultaneously be high and low art. There is an undeniable depth to his plays. The characters are complex and the plots are compelling. Many of them are also super bonkers and hilarious to behold. When we feel the pressure to make everything about Shakespeare highly intellectual, we miss out on so much. If one is too focused on the deepest parts of Titus Andronicus, one would miss out on perhaps the greatest your mama joke of all time. Villain, you have undone our mother. Villain, I have done thy mother. Let's have the conversations about themes and imagery. Let's take the time to analyze the text and appreciate the genius of it. Those are important conversations to have. But let's also talk about the fart jokes and pure shenanigans that happen in 99% of the plays. Let's talk about how revenge or fate functions in Macbeth. Let's also take time to appreciate the guard telling knock-knock jokes as he pees on a castle wall. Hamlet could be analyzed till the end of time. Let's do that. But let's take a moment to appreciate his glorious snark. 
Because honestly, when everything has to be on the level of Hamlet or the Tempest, we ignore this huge chunk of the canon. King John may not be the best play, but it contains one of my favorite characters, Philip the Bastard. I was honestly shocked to find such an amazing character in a play that receives such little love. We also ignore the fact that some of the plays are total duds. Looking at you, Henry VI. You know why some of the plays are duds? Because Shakespeare was not an infallible genius. He was just a dude who was super good at writing plays. If we break down the myth and make Shakespeare simply a man, the larger community can only benefit. Part of the way we do that is by understanding the man and what he may have really been like. Unfortunately, little is known about his biography. However, we can make educated guesses based on the information we do have. For example, we know that in grammar school he would have had to learn Latin and probably Greek. He would have been introduced to the classics and been forced to memorize many texts. Texts he would later appropriate for his own plays. We have a pretty good idea of his source materials because he straight up copied a lot of them. I was shocked to hear a reading from a recently identified source and realized just how little he changed the words for the now is the winter of our discontent speech in Richard III. By closely examining these texts, we form the image of a playwright that was more of an adapter than a creative writer. I cannot stress this enough. That is okay. It's okay that Shakespeare had a shady malt business. It's okay that he was a Glover's son from Stratford. It's okay that he left his wife his second best bed when he died. It's okay because it doesn't diminish his work. The truth about Shakespeare doesn't make Hamlet, King Lear, Othello, or The Tempest any less special. In fact, to me, it makes it more special because there is no reason anyone couldn't be like Shakespeare. All it does is make the whole thing that is Shakespeare studies feel less intimidating. It's time we brought Shakespeare back to the masses and stopped being afraid of confronting the difficult, silly, or raunchy bits. And thus concludes this episode's peek at the Bard. Next time, we're going to talk about the comedy of errors and what makes it magnificently bananas. That episode will be uploaded two Mondays from now. If you need some more Shakespeare fun in the meantime, please check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. If you liked what you heard and want to be sure you don't miss an episode, please hit the subscribe button. If you really liked what you heard, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps get this podcast recommended to others. Thank you for joining me. For our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>